0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm CP Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Lauren Willig about her latest novel, Band of Sisters, about a relief unit sent to France in 1917 from Smith College, where, as it happens, the New Books Network is based. The Smith College Relief Unit really existed, From 1917 to 1919, a small group of alumni traveled to Picardy in the French countryside where they moved heaven and earth to help the local population recover from the damage inflicted by German troops. But the women in Lauren Willig's novel are fictional, even though their adventures taken from the letters and memoirs left behind by their real life counterparts did take place. The novel opens with a series of attempts by one of the central characters, Kate Moran, to explain her plans to her family. Uh, until I say otherwise, these are all struck out. Dear Ma and Dad, I know this may come as some surprise, but I've decided to leave my position at Miss Cleary's to join the Smith College expedition to France. Dear Ma and Dad, I hope the boys are well. I have some exciting news to share. I've signed up with the Smith College Relief Unit. We're a group of alumni who mean to sail for France to bring aid to French villagers. i resign resigned my position at... Dear Ma and Dad, You may have read in the news about the Smith College Relief Unit. And then, not struck out, Dear Ma, would it be all right if I joined you all for dinner next Sunday? I'll be in town and would very much like to see everyone. Your loving daughter, Katie. Miss Catherine Moran, class of 11, to her mother, Mrs. Frances Shaughnessy. And now, please join me in welcoming Lauren Willick. Hi, Lauren. I'm looking forward to talking with you again.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Carolyn. It is so lovely to be back.
0: Listeners who would like to know more about your earlier writing can hear the interview we did in 2019 when The Summer Country came out. Uh, the easiest way for them to do that is to search for your name at newbooksnetwork.com. Uh, but tell us what caused you to move from 19th century Barbados to World War I France and to the Smith College Relief Unit in particular. Well, in addition to writing my own books, I also co-write with
1: two very good friends, Beatrice Williams and Karen White. And right after I finished writing The Summer Country, I moved on to one of our Team W books. And that one was set in World War One France, World War Two France, and... France, again, in the 1960s. And for that book, one of the details we needed was to know what Christmas would have been like under the German occupation in World War One in Picardy. And so we were digging and digging. And one of the things that popped up was a memoir by a smithy talking about throwing Christmas parties for French villagers right behind the front lines in 1917. And I, I saw this and I thought, okay, this has to be a joke. This has to be fiction. What on earth were a group of Smithies doing there right next to the trenches throwing Christmas parties for villagers? So of course I dropped everything and read the memoir and realized that no, it wasn't fiction. In fact, this was very real. There had been a group of Smithies there and I was fascinated. I was fascinated both by the the incongruity of it and also by the fact that I thought it was incongruous incongruous, that my image of World War I was so strongly that of the trenches and, you know, Wilfred Owens' Per Patria Mori, a very male sort of war, that it had never occurred to me that there could be women bringing humanitarian aid in the war zone. And so, of course, I called my agent. as like, I think I found my next book. I have to write about these amazing Smith women who went off to the front to help French villagers during World War I.
0: You mentioned in your historical note that the Smith College archivists were particularly helpful to you in your research. Would you like to give a shout out to them and what kinds of materials did they provide for you? Well, this book
1: really would not be here without the amazing super librarians of Smith College Special Collections. When I started work on Band of Sisters, My children were one and five, and there was just no way I could up and go to the archives in Northampton for a day, much less the months it was going to take me to comb through the material I needed. Because one of the amazing things about the members, the real members of the Smith College Relief Unit, was that they wrote, Copiously. They wrote piles and piles and piles of letters home, and I had these tantalizing snippets of them because some of them excerpts had been posted in the Smith College Alumni Quarterly in 1917 and 18. And so I had seen these little bits of these letters, but of course they were highly edited and sanitized. You know, they cut off at these interesting dot, dot, dot points. I knew there had to be more to the story. And there was this treasure trove of material at Smith. And so I contacted the, libra- the librarians at Smith College Special Collections because there was a little thing on their website saying, you yeah, we do digitize materials and can send people stuff. And I figured, oh gosh, you know, they probably mean like, you know, 20 pages worth. And here I am asking for so much, but they did not blink an eye. They digitized thousands of pages of material for me, and not just letters, but, I mean, thousands of pages of letters, but also um, journal entries, photographs, these wonderful doggerel poems that the women had written about each other that were retained in the archives. And scores of the um, hymns, the canticles, they learned to sing for a mass they threw in their village, which was the first religious service any of their villagers had had since the war began. So there were all of these incredible artifacts there. And I mean, I just, I owe so much to the archivists at Smith College. I'm so grateful. And they actually, so the materials they gave me, of course, came out, um, sort of monochrome, they took some pictures of some of the letters to show me what they looked like in color, because they knew I would appreciate that, which, you know, it just meant so
0: much. That is truly remarkable. How lucky that you you not only found the archives, but the archivists were so helpful. I mean, that's really just amazing. It just, they were, I mean, just, I really thought that they were going to balk
1: at reproducing so much material, but they were just lovely about it.
0: So although each woman in the unit is a unique and memorable character, and I wish we had time to talk about each of them because they're marvelous, um, you do have three main characters, uh, Kate Moran featured in my introduction, uh, her best friend from college, Emmy Van Alden, and Emmy's cousin Julia, the junior doctor for the unit. So let's start with Kate. How would you describe her in terms of her background and her personality?
1: Kate is pure a tree grows in Brooklyn. For anyone else who loved that book growing up, she's basically Francie Nolan, um, except slightly reversed. She's the daughter of an Irish-American mother and a Czech, or at the time, Bohemian, immigrant father who, he died when she was very young. He drove a cart horse for the local brewery and had an accident with the horse and died, um, leaving her and her mother in really deep poverty. And so she grew up in a rather ramshackle, um, very Irish-American part of Brooklyn and won, and lived like Francie in a tree grows in Brooklyn in the library. And she wins a scholarship to Smith where Kate starts to think she can actually, she's very bright, she's a very good student, and she begins to feel that she can fit in with these other girls, um, because you know how college is, it's this magical place where people's backgrounds don't matter, where you're all coming together on common ground, and whoever you are at home is not necessarily who you are at school, and she winds up rooming with my other heroine, Emmy Van Alden, who is the sion of an old Mayflower Knickerbocker family. I mean, the blood does not run more blue than it does in Emmy.
0: Yeah, they are very different. And how does Kate end up in the Smith College Relief Unit? Well, Kate, after Smith,
1: winds up because, of course, she has to make her own way. And she's found herself in this odd position where she can't really go home again because her family feel that she sort of has become above them. But at the same time, she does not belong to the world of any of the women she went to school with, these comfortable upper-middle-class women who go home to homes where they're, you know, it's taken as a matter of course that they're servants and so on. And so she takes a job as a French teacher at a young ladies' academy in Boston, and she hates it with a burning passion. But she's kind of stuck until suddenly her old roommate, Emmy Van Olden, shows up and asks her to join the Smith College Relief Unit to replace a girl who's dropped out, because of course Kate speaks very good French, she's a French teacher, and she learned how to drive one long ago summer visiting emily's family and their co- Emmy's family and their cottage at Newport. And ordinarily, Kate would never, ever, ever do something like this. She would not take up the call. She certainly wasn't going to go to France on a humanitarian mission, but she hates her job, and Emmy catches her at just that psychological moment where she just cannot bear it anymore. And the idea of going to France, especially once Emmy tells her that you know that there's a fund to pay their way, that as part of the funding for the unit that her way will be paid, Kate decides on the spur of the moment to go and, of course, immediately doubts that decision.
0: And as you've mentioned, uh, Emmy has a very different social background and actually a very different personality from Kate, which is always the fun thing about friends. Um, what makes her decide to go to France uh, on this rescue mission?
1: Well, my poor Emmy, she is the daughter of one of the gilded suffragettes. There was a group of um, society ladies in the 1890s, who really adopted the suffragette call. And Emmy's mother is one of those, and she, but she adopts it more than anyone else. She's become a famous speaker and agitator for women's rights, which she can get away from, with because she has a huge fortune and is first cousin to two senators. Um, so when she chains herself to a railing, no one is going to march her away to the tombs, you know, the, the New York police um, jails. But anyway, so Emmy has grown up in the shadow of this remarkable mother who, you know, births multiple children, supports all these causes, gives speeches internationally, um writes articles, you know, writes editorials for all the papers and, you know, is just this larger than life figure with very determined ideas about what the new woman should be and education for young ladies. And she tries to give Emmy the sort of education that she herself wished she would have but Emmy is nothing at all like her mother. Emmy is a romantic and she likes poetry and she's really bad at math. And this is all very hard for her, but she wants desperately to please her mother. And so for Emmy, when the, when the, um, when Mrs. Rutherford, the founder of my fictional version of the founder of the unit, when Mrs. Rutherford issues the call to action and says that there's a humanitarian crisis in the psalm and what's needed to fix it are Smith women, Emmy hears this and thinks, okay, at last, here is something she can do to make her mother proud um, and really justify her existence. And so that's why she goes off. She has these dreams of doing something really noble and wonderful that will make her mother finally approve of her.
0: Uh, Julia is, in addition to a doctor, um, Emmy's cousin. And uh, she and Kate uh, don't get along uh, at first <laughs> <laughs> blush and didn't get along even when they were at Smith. Um, so what's Julia's story? Um, what lies behind the conflict between her and Kate as presented at the beginning of the novel? We don't want to go into you know, the whole development of the whole thing.
1: Oh, of course. Yeah. Well, Julia is Emmy's first cousin, and she and Kate hate each other from the moment they meet at Smith. They are both highly competitive academically and sort of vie for the first place slot in their class. And of course, Kate hates Julia because from her point of view, Julia has everything. Julia, unlike Emmy, who is notably playing in a kind of Eleanor roosevelt way, Julia is beautiful, classically beautiful. She's also brilliant, um, unassailably brilliant, and, of course, comes from this very, very old-line family. But what Kate doesn't realize about Julia is that Julia's branch of the family has no money um, because Julia's mother, among other things, her second husband is was a French count, and so there Julia is with this mother who's a countess, and Kate thinks it's all impossibly grand, and doesn't realize that they're desperately poor and that um, Julia is under a great deal of pressure to marry well, which is the last thing in the world she wants to do. She wants to become a doctor. But Kate, of course, wrapped in her own insecurities, does not see anything, does not, um, does not see any of this. And when she overhears Julia um, towards the end of their time at Smith refer to her as Emmy's latest charity case. It really sours both Kate's relationship with Julia, who she never liked anyway, and her friendship with Emmy.
0: And that leads me right into my next question, because Kate and Emmy were close friends when they were in college, and they're obviously still close enough that Emmy's able to talk Kate into going to France, but um, once they're actually on the boat, we do see that their their friendship has begun to unravel, and um, you've hinted at why that is, but is there something also in their experiences since, or their personalities or something like that, that explains why this comment of Julia's is so crushing to Kate? Well, I think
1: I, I've always I went to an all girls school myself for 13 years, and I've always been fascinated by what draws people together, the sort of the nuances of female friendship, and I think ironically that part of often what draws people to each other as friends that is that one will perceive in the other something that they themselves lack, but that is also the exact thing that same thing that can cause fissures and misunderstandings between friends. And in the case of Kate and Emmy, each sees the other as having something they don't, Um, which is of course what draws them together partly in college, that Kate is incredibly organized and does very well at school. And Emmy at Smith really relies on her for help getting by because Emmy is not suited to the truly grueling academic curriculum at Smith. And, you know, Kate keeps her going, and so Emmy thinks that Kate must despise her for being really so so bad at academics, so disorganized, and she's always, I think, convinced a little bit that Kate looks down on her. Kate, meanwhile, of course, always at the back of her mind is the fear that Emmy, who comes from this incredibly exalted background, sees her as just another Bridget, Irish, Catholic, and poor because this is a time when, you know, in a cl- any given Smith class, the number of Catholic girls is in single digits. Um, it, there is a strong wave of anti-Catholicism in America at the time, especially among Emmys set. And so Kate is very sensitive about this. And so when she hears, you know, after graduation, Julia referring to her as Emmys ca- uh, charity case, it immediately feeds upon all of these pre-existing fears, and she's convinced that 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 really is what she is, to Emmy, just another charity, and that Emmy can never really see her as an equal because she is a charity girl from Brooklyn and Irish Catholic and poor.
0: Quite early on, Emmy meets a mysterious British captain uh, who at first identifies himself only as the Scarlet Pimpernel. Now, the Scarlet (laughs) Pimpernel is a literary figure close to my heart, and I know yours also, but... um, Why does this character make this claim? Um, Perhaps you could include a brief explanation of who the Scarlet Pimpernel is because he may be less familiar to our U.S. listeners, although U.K. listeners will know all about him. Well, for those who don't know the Scarlet
1: Pimpernel, he is, of course, the title character of Baroness Orczy's 1905 novel, The Scarlet Pimpernel, about a dashing British spy during the French Revolution, a master of disguise who rescues French aristocrats from the guillotine. And so when Emmy meets this mysterious British captain um, who has his own reasons, really, not for wanting to say who he is, instead of introducing himself properly, he sort of mockingly you know, introduces himself as the Scarlet Pimpernel, and this. So, for those who don't know about the Scarlet Pimpernel, it was a juggernaut of a success. Um, for those who, like me, grew up in the 80s, it was the Thornbirds, or I guess I'm trying to think of a book that has that sort of weight and resonance. Now, I mean, I guess you know, Kristen, um Hannah's The Nightingale, but that has a fi- primarily female readership, I think. Whereas this was a book that men and women read. There was a stage version. Everyone knew about the Scarlet Pimpernel, and it was this wonderful romance and adventure story, and of course my romantic Emmy adored it. And so when he identifies himself as the Scarlet Pimpernel, it, this is someone who speaks her language, even though he's actually you know, putting her off by not revealing his identity, she's kind of charmed by it. And you know, as you said, this is the Scarlet Pimpernel is something dear to both our hearts. I, I wrote before I started writing standalone historical novels, a series of 12 books about a Scarlet Pimpernel spin-off, "The Pink Carnation." And so this was also, I couldn't resist. it was a bit of a nod to my pre-existing readers who know about my Scarlet Pimpernel history.
0: And I do want to emphasize to our listeners, if you have not read the Pink Carnation series, you should definitely go out and find them. Um, The first one is (laughs) The Secret History of the Pink Carnation. This is how I first heard your name. I I don't even remember how I found the book. Maybe I was just looking at Borders, you know, in the days when they had actual physical bookstores that you could walk through. Oh, I do miss those days. I love Borders (laughs) so much. Oh, me too. That was my relaxation. You know, other people can buy shoes and clothes but i used to go to bookstores just to relax um so the smith college relief unit travels to france by ship which is already an under a dangerous undertaking in 1917 and then when the group reaches paris it immediately encounters obstacles um, i'd like you to tell us about those but also what they're doing in France, because I realize that we haven't actually mentioned what the purpose was. <laughs> we, we plunged so much into the middle of things. Well, the reason they were
1: there is because, so to sort of back up a bit, we all know about um, how the Germans occupied France in World War II, but what a lot of people don't know is that the Germans also occupied a portion of France during World War I. They pushed forward as far as they could and then basically got stuck in 1914. And so the swath of France they occupied... Um, Well, they they were not gentle occupiers. And when in spring of 1917, the British Army managed to finally push them back a little bit. But before they went, they systematically destroyed the villages they had been occupying. They hustled all of the villagers into one village while they went through and they poisoned the wells, destroyed buildings, broke plows. They also moved all of the able-bodied men and women left. And at this point, there really weren't many men left. Most had already joined the French army or been sent off to work camps. But they, they rounded up really mostly a lot of all of the teenage girls, as well as any other able-bodied adults who were left, and they sent them off to work camps in Germany, leaving only the very young, the very old, and the very infirm. And then they took all these people and said, great. You can go home now. And they sent them back to their ruined villages, having removed any shelter or sustenance, um, secure in this, the um, idea that then these people would be a burden on the French war effort, that they would starve and die. And a, a charismatic and eccentric Smith alumna heard of this and decided that what was needed was a group of Smithies to go over and rebuild these villagers' homes and livelihoods. Um, She saw this really in the nature of a social service project where they would provide medical care. They would also start up agriculture and industry. Again, they would buy animals and bring animals. But of course, first, there were the basic needs of seeing people's homes rebuilt, getting them beds, getting them clothes, feeding the babies. I mean, really the place there, there was no food. Um, And so she got together this group and they went off to France. And that's where your question kind of picked up. So uh, this group of 18 Smithies volunteered, they had an application form, which is kind of hilarious. Um, And 18 people were chosen. There were two doctors. There were a number of women who could drive who were their chauffeurs. Um, there were a lot of people with either teaching or social service background, and they had one agriculturalist who was going to be their specialist for dealing with animals, and animals, vegetables, and minerals. But um, she was delayed in D.C. at the Department of Agriculture, so they had to go off without her, which caused a lot of issues. So the group set off on the S.S. Rochambeau. Um, a number of them had not met before they left, and there was a stirring farewell at the Smith Club in New York, And I think the the embarking on the ship was a rude awakening for many of these women because one of the first things that happened was they were given dog tags with their names on them in case they drowned and had to be identified. Um, I think it became sort of very clear to them at that point that they were going into a war zone. And when they got to France, things did not go smoothly. Um, They they arrived, they went to Paris, and they found that at the inn where they thought they were going to have accommodation – not enough rooms had been reserved. And so they had to wrangle for an attic where they could set up a sort of dormitory. And it kind of went on from there because their founder was brilliant at the big ideas, but was not always so precise about the details. And it was also one of these things where, you know, this this is wartime France. There's a great deal of bureaucracy, a great deal of red tape, and a lot of stuff that's supposed to happen doesn't. So one of their lifelines that they brought with them were three trucks that they had shipped over with them because their plan was they had 11 villages they were supposed to rebuild and take care of, and they were going to drive around from their little headquarters in their trucks and you know help the villagers. And they get to Paris, and they hear that their trucks are somewhere on the docks, and they will be delivered to them at some point. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait. And meanwhile, they volunteer at various charities in France, and the girls start getting antsy. And finally, they have to go to Saint Nazar and find their trucks in boxes on the docks and put them together themselves. You know, and a lot—I mean, these are women who barely know how to drive, much less you know, car assembly. But their founder is basically like, "You're smart women, you're smithies. You know how to figure stuff out. Just figure it out. You can do it." and miraculously they do. But this sort of sets the tone for the whole thing, where nothing ever quite goes as they plan, and they find themselves having to turn their hand to things they never expected. So they, they land in France in, um, on August 14th, and they finally make it to their headquarters in um, this uh, village called Greycourt, where they're they're housed on the grounds of a ruined chateau. They're in these little barracks on the grounds of the chateau, and they finally make it there in mid-September to begin their work.
0: And uh, tell us a bit about the conditions. I mean, you mentioned the conditions they're going to be living in, which are horrific, and you've indicated uh, the general situation of the villages because of what the Germans left. But they are coming in um, with basically no, not much background at all, and how do they get started even? You know, and that that is definitely an issue. So they get there, and
1: it's a there's a lot of trial and error. I mean, the one thing where I feel like I describing them as not having much background of them in injustice is a lot of them had background in settlement house work, which was this movement in the late 18th, early 19th century, where upper, upper middle class women would go into rural slums, oh, no, sorry, not rural slums, the opposite, urban slums. They would go into urban slums and they would um, set up community centers, teach classes, you know, help people with hygiene and literacy and all sorts of things they would teach, kindergarten classes. And so a lot of the Smithies who went over had done at least a year or two of settlement house work, But Doing that sort of work in an urban slum was very different than suddenly being in a rural community destroyed by war. Um, And so that was a big difference for them and something they had to grapple with. Some of their most dramatic misadventures have to do with livestock because this was an agrarian area and part of their founder's image was that they were going to rebuild the agrarian base. And part of that required buying lots of chickens, cows, and pigs, which they would then, the cows were to be used to provide milk to their villagers and the chickens and the pigs were to both provide eggs and also to be sold off to villagers to help them rebuild their own little home farms. And, But their agriculturist was delayed. So these lovely urban upper middle class women found themselves having to order and deal with livestock, which led to some... wonderfully funny of snafus, including ordering 72 roosters rather than 72 (laughs) chickens, because most of them had never really personally met a chicken before, and they thought they looked like chickens (laughs) until finally someone was like, they couldn't figure out why they weren't laying eggs. And then finally someone was like, actually, you bought the wrong thing. And then they had to go sell off their roosters for stew and try to buy chickens. So that was the sort of thing they were dealing with. They also had a lot of trouble with, you know, you hear people talk about the mud of the psalm, just getting from place to place was an issue. Their trucks kept breaking down. They became really good at car maintenance, (laughs) vehicle maintenance. But I mean, they were dealing with, they were grappling with these very unglamorous, everyday sort of problems. Like what do you do when you get stuck in the mud in the middle of a war zone? And you know, so their basic plan was really to go from village to village um, and take surveys, figure out which families needed, what, who needed immediate medical care, you know where and but the the need they found was so alarming. Um, they found children sleeping on wooden boards on the on mud floors. Um, there's one description that haunted me when they talked about this village called Kennedy, um, where there were 50 children, not one of them well. And they also had to deal with, there were a lot of what they called Bosch babies, where French women had been raped by German soldiers and were having um, the products of those unions, and you know, which was just miserable for the mothers who were there. You know, many of them were only 14 or 15 who were suddenly having these babies. And um, anyway, so the Smithies had to take All of this on. And a lot of them had background in kindergarten work or work with children, but they were shocked and horrified by the fact that when they they got there, they threw a big sort of children come play on the grounds of the castle thing. And the children didn't play. They had been through three years of war. They didn't run and shout like normal children. They were terrified. And when one of the Smithies threw a ball at a child to play catch, but the child wasn't looking, the ball hit the child. The child went hysterical because she thought it was a shell. And this poor Smithy wrote home heartbroken that she couldn't believe she'd done that. She hadn't thought. And she had never meant to cause this child this distress. And it was, but it was something, again, even working in rural slums, as some of them had after Smith, this was something none of them had dealt with before. And sort of getting to make the children feel secure and comfortable again was one of their big missions. Sorry, I can go on about this for ages. <laughs>
0: No, I'm glad that you you mentioned that they did have a background. And I guess the part, there are two parts of their mission that really uh, interest me. One is that although they have, in order to make it work, they have to give people a great many things. Their actual goal is to make the villagers self-sufficient again. They, do, they don't, it, it is charity, but it's not intended to be something that's that keeps giving you know you this is part of the issue with the, the hens that they could have given the hens to the villagers and the villagers would then have their own eggs and they would be able to to start to build you know they'd have their own cow and so on um and the other thing is the you know you can as devastating as it must be to grow up in the tenements of new york or you know the modern day equivalent the effect of not just of war but this this war that has stripped all of the adults out of these children's lives. I, I don't know how anybody could prepare for that, to be honest. Well,
1: and one of the most heartbreaking bits, one of the things that haunted me reading these letters and the original memoir that got me into this. Was that so many of them had family members who were avec les Bosch, and that was the phrase that kept cropping up, that were with the Germans, that everyone had a daughter or sister who had been taken by the Germans when they did these roundups of teenage and 20 something girls who they sent off to work camps in Germany. And every family member had someone, every family had a family member who was avec les Bosch, and they would show the Smithies artifacts, um, a picture, a favorite teacup something that belonged to that person who was away, avec baches, still alive, but inaccessible to them. And they never knew when they would see this person or these people again. And so every family had someone who was lost that way. And there was one really heartbreaking one where um, there was an old lady whose son had been taken away, avec baches, and they had actually gotten word. It was very rare to get word, but they got word that he died while in Germany. But no one wanted to tell her because she was happier thinking her son might still be alive of les than to tell her that he was definitively dead and never coming home. And so that was sort of a haunting background that was there the whole time that you have this depleted community. And of course, you know, the men are with the army, but that's almost, that's better. You know, they might die, they might be killed by the German army, but they're there, they're doing something useful for France, but the people away of les it's just tragic. Um, and back to your previous point, though, about the charity work, this was something that was sort of a very strong tenet of their founder that she didn't want to, and the phrase she kept using, was she didn't want to beggar the villagers. That in fact, actually, a lot of them, they had an allowance from the French government. They actually had money, but there were no stores. There was no wood to you know, build or make furniture. There was nothing to spend the money on. And so the idea was to provide them things cheaply and let them buy it so they would feel like you know, that they were still independent and strong and not paupers being given charity by these interloping Americans. And so the scheme that the Smithies came up with, which worked really brilliantly, was a traveling store. They would fit up one of their trucks with, you know, with... um, things to buy, um, household items of all varieties, and become they joke that they had turned into peddlers. And they would drive from village to village and send these sell these items at a, a steep discount. And apparently it worked brilliantly because the villagers thought they were putting one over on the stupid Americans who didn't realize what things were worth. And so everyone was happy all around, and they would report, the, you know, we lost this much, on um, items we sold in the store this month, but that was a good thing. They wanted to operate at a loss.
0: That's great. Um, So perhaps not surprisingly, uh, given all the tensions and the difficulties, uh, there is some tension within the group uh, increasingly over time. And at least in one element of it focuses on the leader, Mrs. Rutherford. Uh, And Kate in particular soon realizes that there's a coup underway. Um, Can you tell us a bit about, not... Just about the coup, but about Mrs. Rutherford. Well, I, you actually did mention a bit about Mrs. Rutherford herself, but how does she become the target of this coup, maybe is a better question.
1: Well, Mrs. Rutherford is my fictional version of the real founder of the unit, Harriet Boyd Hawes, who was both brilliant and eccentric. She was a pioneering archaeologist at you know a time when women weren't allowed to excavate, she fought and was able to excavate and did great groundbreaking excavations in Crete. For those who like Elizabeth Peters' books, she's very Amelia Peabody. But she also had a sideline in war nursing and humanitarian aid. And she, but she was one of these people who is, you know, she was brilliant but highly volatile, um, rather high-handed. So Mrs. Rutherford is drawn as di- very directly from the real Harriet Boyd Hawes, and this coup you mentioned was also drawn directly from the record. Because one of the things that struck me when I was reading the public materials, the memoirs and the bits of the letters that had been printed in the Smith College Alumni Quarterly was, so they get to Gray Court in the middle of September, and within a week or so of their arriving, the, the director, their founder, leaves. And that's just, she just ups and leaves. And at first it looks like she's going to resign as director, but stay on. And then she, but then she goes. And no one said why. I couldn't figure it out. And so once I got my hands on those thousands of pages of private letters, the archivist sent me, I was digging, trying to figure out what actually happened there. Because the sort of half-hearted excuse put forward was that she left for health reasons. But there's no mention to her being of her being in ill health anywhere else before and so when i finally got my hands on the private papers it became very clear that there was in fact a coup that you know that started really almost as soon as they left on the roshambo it was a combination of personality and vision and the vision side of things was the founder of the unit felt very, very strongly that this was a humanitarian mission. They were there to help the French villagers. they were not there to do war work per se. they were not there as adjuncts to the American army who had just joined in the war and were over there in increasing numbers. Um, but when they got stranded in Paris while they were waiting for their trucks, the women were farmed out to various other charities you know some made splints and. things like that for the wounded, and others did canteen work with the Salvation Army and the Red Cross. And a couple of people began to feel very strongly that there was no reason that they should be going off and doing work right next to the front lines for these unknown French villagers when they could be helping their own boys, and that really what they should be doing was staying there in Paris and doing canteen work and cheering up. They, they call them Sammies, the American soldiers, or our boys, but cheering up our boys as they came through on the way to the front. And they, this was put very strongly, but their founder was very determined that this was a humanitarian mission focused on rebuilding the lives of villagers and really nothing to do with the war effort or the American army. And so you know, I think you know, sometimes I wonder what would have happened if they're, so they're, when their trucks were stranded in San Nazar, their, their founder pushes the girls to go get them and figure out how to put them together, and they do manage to get off to their headquarters at Grey Court. And sometimes I wonder, had, she, had they waited for the trucks to be delivered, would the entire mission never have happened? Would the people who wanted to stay in Paris and do canteen work eventually have got the upper hand? Because what winds up happening is they do get to Grey Court, but the coup works and they manage to evict their director and she's replaced by their assistant director, um, who is the unit, the unit senior doctor who really has very little interest in being director. You know, she's very, she is, I mean, there is a lot of medical work to be done. She has no interest in admin. And so another, a member of the unit in, in real life, a woman named Marie Wolfs, but in my novel, my own cage, is appointed assistant director and winds up functionally running the unit. Um, You know, after a week there, (laughs) a week, two weeks there in Grey Court, not knowing what they're doing. The amazing and crazy thing is that despite this, the unit continues with the founders' original vision and succeeds in their work because there is every reason that they should have failed.
0: So what would you like readers to take away from Band of Sisters?
1: Well, there was a line from one of the real letters. I don't have it next to me, so I can't quote it. But to paraphrase, this line really stuck with me. Um, Elizabeth Bliss, class of 1908, wrote home that it was amazing how fine people were when all the superficial barriers were down due to a great emergency and that she would never forget all the beautiful and terrible things she saw. And that's what I want people to take away from this book is how fine people are. That here are these women going you know, across an ocean away to try to help children they've never met. And they really do. And they they struggle through all sorts of things. And they just, half the time, they don't know what they're doing, but they know they have to do something. And so they keep abandoning their plans and having to try their hand at new things, but they keep on trying and they keep on doing and they do whatever is needed in the hope that every little bit will count. And it's, I mean, I think we think of heroism in terms of really large, grand actions. But to me, this was really moving small, everyday hero, heroism. You know, getting a child milk, rebuilding a home, reassuring people that they weren't forgotten. And to me, that—that that is really, in the words of that Smith unit member, that is truly fine. And I hope people will take as much hope and inspiration from that as I did.
0: It is a very heartening story. I think I really enjoyed it. Um, You always have a scary array of projects on the back burner. What are you working on next?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I may have mentioned the founder of the Smith Unit a time or two. I was really deeply fascinated by the real founder of the Smith Unit. As I, I became more and more fascinated by her as I was working on this book. And my fictional version of her, Betsy Hayes Rutherford, as I was writing the book, started dropping little hints to me about her past. And so right now I'm working on a sort of prequel to Band of Sisters about... The founder of the Smith Unit back before she was the founder of the Smith Unit in the late 1890s, when she was a young Smith grad named Betsy Hayes, who is determined to be an archaeologist, but winds up swept up first in the Greco Turkish War and then in the Spanish American War and really sort of discovers herself and her purpose in life in the process.
0: Well, I would definitely look for that one because I, she was one of my favorite characters and I wish you all the best of luck with it. Thank you so much for sharing your Thank time with you. us today. Well, thank you so
1: much for having me. Thank you for letting me ramble on. I love these women and I just, I adore talking about them.
0: And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm CP Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Lauren Willig about Band of Sisters. Find out more about her at www.laurenwillig.com. That's one word, Lauren Willig. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.